Warning, this podcast is for those who are 18 years of age and older. Content includes talk of sexual violence, child abuse, kidnapping, drugs, and violence. Viewer discretion is advised. Please only use marijuana if it is allowed in your state. The illegal use of marijuana is punishable by the contents of law. Hey, how's it going, guys? Welcome to the first episode of High Time and True Crimes, where I get high and talk about murders most foul, kidnappings that have yet to been solved, or, you know, missing persons cases that have just gone cold. Uh, This episode for the first episode of the series is going to be part one of the Stainer brothers case. Um, It's a tale of two brothers um, who became a hero. One person, (laughs) one person became a hero of his own tale and the other would end up, you know, on death row. It's a pretty good story. It's a pretty good story. Um, Please excuse me if I, like, stumble over my words and laugh it off and try again. I have been trying to record this for five hours now. And I think this is going to be the best take. Um, Of course, now that I'm tired and almost tired of doing it, but I do enjoy this story so much, but... I'm still going to continue and, you know, when the tough gets going, the going gets something. Something about just keep going. Just keep going. I got my drinks. I got my snacks. I'm all right. Alrighty. So, parents, put the kids to bed. Let's get out the brownies. Hippies, turn up the volume so you can actually hear me. And those of you having to secretly listen to me, well, plug in those headphones, damn it, we got dark stuff to talk about. Puff and pass, guys, puff and pass. <clears throat> Let's go light them up. Make sure you stay hydrated, guys. Make sure you have food nearby. Everyone's good? Alright, alright. So, sit back. I'm gonna start telling you this tale. But... The tale doesn't start with a Stainer brother. No, it doesn't start with a Stainer brother at all. It starts with a man or a boy by the name of Kenneth Parnell. Kenneth Eugene Parnell. He was born September 26, 1931 in Amarillo, Texas. Amarillo. Amarillo. I want to say that's Amarillo. Yeah, Amarillo. I'm dumb. I know what that says. Amarillo. If I am absolutely saying this wrong, somebody let me know. Um, so he was born during born during the Dust Bowl era, uh, which was a period of time during the Great Depression when dust storms were, you know, ruining the crops and all that other kind of stuff. And so Kenneth, he didn't grow up with a lot. He didn't grow up with a lot at all. Um, It was a time of a lot of suffering and just people having to scrape together to get by. It was not a good time. Um, Kenneth's parents were Cecil Frederick and Mary um, Olive Parnell. Um, Kenneth's family, yeah, he bounced when... Or I'm sorry, Kenneth... (laughs) Kenneth's father, not his, yeah, his entire family just left him alone. No, his dad bounced and left to go get milk and never come back, came back um, when he was six. So, yeah, his dad was just gone. And then his mom, being psycho crazy that she is, which was the reason that Cecil left. Cecil, like, said she was too crazy and he was just like, I'm out. Like, I can't do it anymore. So he left her with all the kids and Kenneth, dude, Kenneth ripped out, (laughs) Kenneth, 
I don't even know how to say this anytime I like speak of it because it makes me like chuckle every time because it's just it's such a dramatic way to handle the situation but like he was so upset about his parents divorcing and his mom moving them to Bakersfield California that like he pulled all his teeth out no well, not all his teeth out he pulled out like four but I guess for a six-year-old that pretty much is all your teeth but I, I don't know anyway I don't know how teeth work in the human anatomy. I'm making a podcast. If I knew about the human anatomy, I would not be sitting here talking about true crime. Would I? I don't know. Like, I guess a lot of people know about the human anatomy. Yeah. Yeah, I I think they do. And they do podcasts. I don't know. For me, like, if... See, if I knew the human anatomy, like, I feel like I'd, I'd actually put work into work i don't know i like what i'm doing i think this is fun all right little tangent there sorry (laughs) okay where was i (laughs) um right so dad bounced and yeah this kid's response was i'm just gonna pull out four of my teeth with pliers oh yeah with pliers yeah he pulled his teeth out with pliers and like i i bet his mom like looked at him and was like well you're not getting money from the tooth fairy now yeah, like how, like if twenty five cents a tooth back then, it's a dollar for pain. <laughs> you just you made yourself bleed for a dollar. <laughs> um. Uh, but after a few years, um, his mother would move them back to Texas. Um, but in nineteen forty four, move them back again to. California um, and then move them back to Texas in 19-something. 19- 1945-ish? Yeah. In the 1945-ish because in the spring of 1944 um, his mom had invested in um, a boarding house to like feed and take care of the oil men that worked at like the oil rig and stuff and they were like rough looking guys and stuff like that well like they worked on an oil rig you know what i mean like you're out there in the heat all day and you're just you're miserable you're tired you want to go home but you don't have a home so someone gave you gives you a home like you're gonna stay there yeah so in the spring when kenneth was 13 year old 13 years old one of these guys like molested him you know like it was it was pretty tragic it was pretty tragic for him but again he did not handle that situation well at all because he would go and light a pasture on fire yeah like he just he just lit a pasture like that kid he's been through so much but like he definitely like something had to have happened to where like he couldn't handle stressful situations yeah, I mean, not saying that, like, what the stuff he uh, went through wasn't stressful, but just, you know, terrible situations or in stressful situations, he just freaked out. <clears throat> um, so, because of this, uh, you know, he was arrested and taken to juvenile hall. And a psychiatrist at the time... Um, would recommend that he kind of stay there for a while to try to get some help with his mental issues. Um, and then he was released in the summer of 1945. But that um, fall, he had gotten into trouble again. Like, shortly after his 14th birthday, he stole a car and was arrested again. Yeah. Like, he he was then sent to a residential facility. A f- facility. Wow. A facility that held juvenile male offenders. He stayed there. He stayed there from October 1945 to February of 1947. Um, and during that time, he engaged in homosexual behavior, both passionately and aggressively. So, like, he would be in relationships with these men, and then he would molest some of them and like crawl on top of them, and things like that um he would then move back in with his mother um in 1947 
um, but that December he was arrested again for public sex acts. Um, he was released to his mother's custody and two months later stole another car and landed in the California Youth Lancaster facility. So, yeah, I think pretty much he gets sent to, like, California jails most of the time. Um, and then I think once or twice in a Texas facility. Not quite sure on that, though. So I would have to look that up. Um, so, like, by this point, you know, he was just out of control. You know, um, he escaped from Lancaster and returned to Bakersfield, um, where uh, he became sexually attracted to a young boy who he claimed was his reason for returning. Parnell was the only, like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I spaced out. Uh, Parnell was only, like, free for a few days before he was then again arrested. I'm not entirely sure what he was arrested for this time. Um, but he was then placed in jail and there he tried to commit suicide by drinking disinfectant. Yeah. Um, after he went to the hospital or had um, treatment done, he would then be sent to the state mental hospital in Napa for 90 days. But before his 90 days were up, he escaped and went to San Francisco, San Francisco and stole a car and once again returned to Bakersfield to see the young boy who he was so, like, obsessed with. Um, he was then rearrested and returned to Lancaster facility where he remained until he was 17 in May of 1949. So, like, he's still young. He's still young at this point. So, it really doesn't... It doesn't really make sense to me how he's, like, escaping so much. Like, they had to have had tracked down this boy, this teenager, for years. For the same shit. Um, so, Kenwin, um, once again, be returned to Bakersville to live with his mother. And started a series of odd jobs just to bring in money. Um... And somewhere during this time, he married a woman named Patsy Jo Dorton. Um, you're really not going to hear much about Kenneth's wives, to be honest. Um, it doesn't really go in depth like that. I think they're just kind of mentioned in all the other paperwork and stuff. Um, so... It's just crazy how he's in and out of jail for pretty much the same thing. He's not making any sense. He's escaping. Like, and he keeps wanting to go back to Bakersfield, California, where this boy is. And he does that on March 1st of 1951. At 19 years old, Parnell approached three young grade school boys with a fake sheriff badge that he had purchased at an Army and Navy surplus store. He talked nine-year-old Bobby Green into going with him. He sexually assaulted and sodomized the young boy. Thought about killing him, but then decided against it and let him go free. So he just full-on was like, I think I'm going to kill it. Nah, you know what? I just don't feel like it. So, eh. Go ahead. Run home. Tell people. I don't care. Like, what the hell? Because that's what the boy did. He ran back and told his family. And Kenneth was convicted of the crime in 1951, deemed a sexual psychopath, and was sentenced to four years in prison with a $5,000 bail. And it was mandatory for him to receive treatment at Norwalk State Hospital in Norwalk State Hospital in California. He manages to escape that place by cutting off a lock off of a closed, like, laundry room window. Yeah, the the laundry room window and he was free until February of 1952 and he was found and arrested in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like how hard was it to 
find this man, Jesus. Um, so in an interview that was done on January 15th, 2000, Parnell said that he kidnapped and molested um, Bobby Green because his wife was pregnant and he had to find another outlet. And I, I just, I don't, I don't understand why you would think it was even an excuse for that, but that's what he said. Oh boy. Like, you can already tell this man is just messed up, like just messed up in the head. Um, <clears throat> so in April of 1955, Purnell was able to get on parole, but Purnell had requested um, to go to San Francisco on his parole, but he really wanted to go back to Bakersfield. Like, he really wanted to go back to Bakersfield, uh, but he was denied because that's where most of his crimes happened. Um, but he was granted permission to go see his mother, who lives there, um, but... He did a no-no, and when he got there, he applied for a job and applied for a transfer for his parole, but it was in violation of his parole, so he was arrested and once again placed in Kern County Jail. Like, they told you you couldn't live there, and then you still go to try to live there. That makes no sense. Um, so, in 1956, he had his parole hearing and then spent the next three months in Folsom State Prison, and on December 17th, 1955 he was given parole again this time in bakersfield i think by this point they were just like you know what you want to go so bad it's fine fine you can go it's fine eh, but it really wasn't fine um so oh yeah by the way patsy's back and in early 1957 uh she filed for a divorce and kenneth hadn't lived with her since march of 1951 and he never saw their daughter, which apparently they had together, but he never saw her. And on August 8th of that year, he then married Emma no Noama Schaefer. Noema? I don't know how to pronounce that. Her um, last middle, her middle name. Yeah, her middle name. Um, anyway, she was 10, year older, 10 years older than him. Jesus. That Nutella really got, like, stuck in my mouth. Um, anyway, she was 10 years older than him, and she gave him a second daughter. Um, now, I do believe that Kenneth was married a third time, and he claims to have been married a third time. But in 1968, um, he claimed that it lasted less than a year, and there's no record of that, which makes um, some people believe that he ended up, quote-unquote, marrying a man. And I do quotes because at the time, marriage between homosexual partners was not legal, um, or he was never married at all. So 10 years after he was arrested for the sodomy case, so now we're looking at 1961, Kenneth Parnell ended up back in prison for armed robbery in Utah, where he held up a service station and was not allowed to enter the state of Utah ever again. Um, while in prison, his second wife, Emma, filed for a divorce too. So that's two divorces and one possible marriage? I don't know. Um, and in 1972, Kenneth got a job as an auditor at Yosemite National Park, where he would work overnight and where he met. Dun, dun, dun. Our next dude who's coming up next is Irvin Edward Murphy. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> it's so good. This Nutella is so good. Um. Yeah. So that's kind of story so far. Rough childhood. Just could not stay out of jail. Um. But he couldn't stay in jail either, so it just, it made no sense. It, I don't know, but let's keep looking. Let's keep talking about Irwin, Irvin, Irwin, Jesus. Let's keep talking about Irvin. And then once the story is all over, we'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. And then you guys can send me an email if you want at true crime. I'm sorry. 
No, that's not it. <laughs> at high time and true crime, send um, at gmail.com. Send me an email and we'll talk about it in the next episode. I am going to take a quick break and I will be right back. Okay, so Irvin. <coughs> Irvin, my boy. Well, not really my boy, but in this situation, he's lesser of the two evils. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so he was born in South Dakota on July 11th of 1941. Um, Irvin said his mother was really abusive to all 10 of her children. He said that she would always fly off the handle when he was about three years old. Um, his mother would beat him because the children were boying were boying <laughs> the children were boying um no the children were being too noisy outside shortly after that um his mother deserted the family which left his father to raise all 10 children um his father started to work at an ice cream parlor to try and provide for his family after moving them to iowa and Irvin was in school until about he was 16 um, he dropped out and then wanted to make his way to California. So he hitchhiked his way there and got a lot of odd jobs, eventually landing the job core as, um, a cook. However, he got into a verbal argument with another cook that ended in him saying some really, um, terrible, mean, rude, racist things to this gentleman. And then he was fired. Um, and he tried to go back to Iowa to try and find his father, but he couldn't find him and made his back his way back to California. Um, after that, Irvin would find his um, he would find like odd jobs to do until he ended up at Yosemite National Park and met up with Ken Kenneth. He met up with Kenneth Parnell in 1972. Um, so Parnell would start telling Irvin about how he wanted to adopt a child, but just one and one off the street. Um, Irvin thought it was really weird <laughs> that Parnell would want to kidnap a child instead of just adopting one the way that everyone else did. Um, and Irvin would, you know, he kept trying to change the subject anytime that Kenneth brought it up, hoping that, you know, it would just be forgotten. Um, yeah that that sounds a little weird don't you don't you think um Irvin did say later that a friend of his said that they didn't trust Kenneth um and they thought that Irvin would get the hint and stay away from him um but Irvin Irvin didn't get the hint like at all um so he didn't find it odd when Kenneth said he wanted to be a minister and to help children off the street and raise them like his own um, Irvin honestly thought that Kenneth was just doing God's duty and helping those in need. Um, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is where little Stephen Stainer comes into play. Unfortunately, Irvin will come to be a fool in all of this. So, let's get going. I'm so excited. Stephen's part is like the longest part of all. So, buckle up. If you need to take a bathroom break, now is the time. Well, for everyone else, I'm going to get right, uh, right started. <laughs> I'm going to get started uh, right into Stephen's case, or Stephen's part of the case, his background. Um, oh boy, I hope you're all ready to buckle up. Alright, so Stephen Gregory Stainer was born April 18th of 1965. He was the third of five children to Delbert and Kay Stainer and his brother, um, Carrie Stainer, who we will talk about in the next episode, will later be convicted of murder. Um, Stephen's father, Delbert, is also known as Del. Uh, and he was said to be a hardworking man who loves people, loves his family, loves life. Uh, he was born during the Great Depression in New Mexico. Um, he had kind of a hard upbringing, the same as Kenneth. Um, 
family was very poor. They didn't have very much. Um, and during his teenage years, Doe and his family moved to California so that his family could find work. Um, Doe eventually found work at a sawmill, and he soon met his future wife, Mary Catherine, or quote-unquote, K. Augustine. She was 18 years old and had been staying at Roman Catholic boarding school and on August oh in August of 1961 they had their first child Carrie. Carrie, yeah, that that was his name, Carrie. They had 5 children in total. Cindy in October of 1963, Stephen Stephen in April of 1965, and Jody in January of 1967. And their daughter, Corey, no, not to be confused as Carrie, in November of 1968. So, total, they had Carrie, Cindy, Stephen, Jody, and Corey. Um, and, like I said, we will talk about Carrie mostly in the next episode. Um, so... Dell's nickname for Stephen growing up was Stevie, and Dell described Stephen being his little puppy dog, quote unquote. Um, Stephen would go want to go everywhere his dad went and wanted to do anything he did. Um, the family at one point lived on a huge ranch with lots of land everywhere. Um, Stephen and his dog Daisy could run and play and just have fun for hours. But unfortunately, the family had to move due to Dell falling and having an accident that left him in the hospital for a few weeks. Um, Dell couldn't keep up the farm, and the family moved to um, Merced's, which I think is in California, um, to a house with much, much smaller yard. Yeah, it's in California. Um, now, Kay started to notice, Stephen's mom, that because they no longer had this huge yard for Daisy to play in, Daisy would pace the yard for hours along the fence, leaving a rundown ring around the yard. Um, one day, Kay took the children to the zoo and noticed a wolf in an, in an enclosure doing the exact same thing. Now, this really upset Kay, and later that day she had a talk with the children, and they all agreed that Daisy should be happy, and we'd be happier on a farm with lots of space to run and play. So they ended up giving her up to friends who would take care of her, but Stephen couldn't go with her, and because he was also affected by the move and having a much smaller living space, he started getting, in, getting into trouble at just six years old. Um... He would cut through neighbors' yards and their flower beds without thinking. To him, he was just running around and trying to get out, you know, all that extra energy. And it's interesting how um, at six, that's when Kenneth started getting in trouble. That's when Stephen started getting in trouble. Um, you know, Del, Stephen's dad, and Kenneth had the same upbringing. Like, it's just, it's interesting how things almost correlate like that. Um, so, Jesus, my cat just scared, <laughs> Rue, hi kitty kitty, don't do that, you can't just reach over here when I'm not paying attention, <laughs> oh, heart attack, <sighs> you can't do that, you can't do that, oh god, now the dogs are barking, oh my god, it's chaos, okay sorry about that um had to get control of the animals all over the place um the cat was standing on a pile of games that we have and she was trying to like i think either get my attention or she was trying to step without losing her balance and her paw caught my eye and it scared me because i wasn't anticipating her being there and i have my headphones on um so i can get this podcast to sound a little better and she scared me and it you know made the dogs bark and stuff so i had to take control for a moment but it's okay we're all right <laughs> heart attack avoided um back to back to steven back to <laughs> what he's got going on um 
Right. So he had to get out, you know, a whole bunch of extra energy. Um, he also wasn't happy about having to move from his friends at school. So when he started school in 1971, he started crying and picking fights with the other kids. Um, Dell and Kay would even get called into a conference with the teacher. The other kids seemed to to be adjusting fine, like their other children, but Stephen was just having a rough time. Um, after a little while, Stephen seemed to settle down a bit, but he was still very shy. Um, didn't really want to talk to anyone, but he was said to have never been rude. Um, and always polite because that's how his parents raised him, which was very good. Um, the very the the family was very tight and did a lot of things together, and it was all in all just seemed like a very nice family to be around. But it did seem as though Dell was very um, a very strict father figure, and the children did get beat quite a lot. Um, but. I'm not quite sure how often and how bad it was because nobody ever really went into that. They just said that Dell was a good guy and the family was nice. So I'm starting to think that maybe like a little bit of abuse happened in the household and nobody really talks about it, but that's just a theory and a speculation. And So um, each morning, Stephen and the other children would walk to school together, but each afternoon, afternoon Stephen would get to walk home alone which he did enjoy because the older siblings didn't go get out until later um he felt as though he had a little bit of freedom doing this you know he get to he got to walk around the neighborhood a little bit without really having anybody tell him what to do and stuff like that um but in November of 1972, Stephen started getting into trouble because he would go over to a friend's house after school and not ask permission first. Um, then he wouldn't come home until dark. And Dell would give Stephen multiple mornings as to make sure he asked permission first and to make sure he came home straight after school. Well, Stephen didn't listen and did this three days in a row. And, and on the third day... Dell beat Steven and he didn't do it again after that. So Steven wouldn't listen, but Dell would take it too far, I think. Not quite sure. Tell me what you guys think. You know, email me. Email me at um high time and true crime at gmail.com. You know, let me know. Let me know what you guys think of this podcast so far. Let me know what you think of different things going on. Let me know your different opinions. No opinion is wrong. And here we accept all opinions to a degree. Just don't be an asshole. Great. Thanks. Um, okay. So, on December 3rd, 1972, Stephen went to a birthday party at a friend's house where they had a chance to have their photograph taken with Santa Claus, and after the party, he went home and told his mom all, he, all about it and what he wanted for Christmas. Um, little did he know, though, that was the last day with his family. Because on December 4th of 1972, Stephen was approached by Urban. Um, now, people who knew Irvin said that he was simple-minded, he trusted people a little too much, and he was very naive. Parnell told Irvin that he was an aspiring minister and that he needed to abduct a young boy to, quote-unquote, raise him in a religious-type environment. So, Irvin followed instructions from Kenneth Parnell and started passing out gospel tracts to boys who were walking home from school that day. So Irvin saw Stephen walking home and approached him. Irvin claimed to be working with the church and that they were seeking donations. He asked Stephen if he knows if his mother would be willing to donate. Stephen was like, well, sure, why not? My mom donates stuff to church all the time. It shouldn't be a problem. Well, Irvin offered to take him to give him a ride home. Then that way they could go and talk to Stephen's mom. And Stephen was like, well, yeah, sure. Um, this was kind of during a time where, you know, it was okay to get rides from random people or strangers and things like that. Um, 
what he didn't know that day though was that steven's mom had plans to pick him up from school at two o'clock but she got held up running errands so she made it to the school route 210 and couldn't see him so she figured that she would just head back home and if she saw him she would pick him up um so Kay goes home and sees Dell and asks Dell if he's seen Steven and Dell was like no I haven't seen him so at three both of them go to pick up the other children from school and ask them if they had seen Steven and they all just say no that they hadn't seen him since lunch um well at this point Dell starts getting mad because he thinks that Steven wants to get again disobeyed him and gone over to a friend's house without asking um but they call everyone that they can think of and none of them had seen steven since school um they drove around town looking for him and eventually did call the police so after steven agreed to going with irvin in a white buick um oh i'm sorry okay after steven agreed to going with irvin a white buick pulled up and there Kenneth Parnell who was in the driver's seat at first Stephen said that everything seemed okay until they had been driving for a while and still didn't reach his house um, Kenneth took Stephen up to his cabin in Kathleen's Valley instead but what Stephen didn't know at the time was that his grandfather's cabin was only a couple hundred feet from where Kenneth was keeping him uh, the first night Kenneth asked Stephen if he had ever been beaten Stephen answered no and Kenneth knew, was a, knew that was a lie Da, da, da. sorry <laughs> Stephen answered no and Kenneth knew that was a lie right off the bat uh why uh well Irvin figured out that Kenneth actually had his eye on Stephen for a long time and had asked the mailman about Stephen's family the mailman would tell Kenneth about the strict discipline that the children would endure if Dell was mad so Kenneth had actually planned to kidnap Stephen for a while he just needed to figure out how to do it well now he'd done it. Stephen later went to say that for dinner that night he tried avoiding green beans and that Kenneth had made that Kenneth had made he simply didn't like them and Kenneth had threatened to spank him if he didn't like them if he didn't eat them. So Kenneth used Stephen's weaknesses against him and actually like stalked him for a while and like was planning on kidnapping him and stuff. So this wasn't this wasn't just a random okay i'm gonna take this kid um so meanwhile this is what shocks me is that meanwhile while this is all going on while steven is in kenneth's house dell steve's father is knocking on his dad steven's grandfather's door 200 feet away from them to tell him about steven's disappearance with the police nobody had any idea no, I, no idea. Steven was 200 feet away from them. 200 feet. And that same night, that same night, Kenneth molested Steven while having the child sleep in the same bed with him. The next day, Kenneth dropped off Irvin at his cabin and told him that he was going to give Steven a hotel room that night so he could go to work on the graveyard shift. But first, um... Though Kenneth took, oh yeah, but first Kenneth took Stephen to an empty parking lot and once again molested him. This time Stephen was scared and tried to pull away, but Kenneth held his grip and forced seven-year-old Stephen Stainer to give him oral sex. Then he took Stephen to his room, gave him pills to help him sleep, and locked the door behind him as he went to work that night. Um, I do want to say that this is where. I should have said something before that first paragraph, but this is the part where it does get a little graphic with things because it does go into detail about some things. So I do apologize. Um, but this, this was a very serious case and Steven had to go into detail in front of the entire world um, and all of America in the 80s to share his story. <clears throat> Um, now, Stephen would go to say that Irvin did not know about the sexual assault, that he only helped Kenneth with the kidnapping. Um, Irvin actually would treat Stephen very nicely, and even during times when Kenneth told Stephen to relieve himself in a bucket in the closet, Irvin would let him go down to the hall to use the communal bathroom. 
Um, Irvin would even bring the boy comic books, but he didn't know anything about the sexual assault that was going on. And Kenneth never did anything with Irvin around. It was said that during the time of Stephen's kidnapping, the entire seven years, his family was just devastated. Uh, friends and family would say that Dell and Kay became almost obsessed with finding him. They even asked physics or psychics to help them, even though they never believed in it before. Um, one psychic went with the police all over and she said she lost her trail, quote unquote, around the little red cabins that strangely enough is where Kenneth was keeping Stephen, but no one ever checked it out. Everyone would go to say that Kay would try to be the rock for the family but Dell wouldn't want anything to do with anyone he kind of checked out from the rest of the family um so on december 11th 1972 at this hotel that kenneth Irvin, and steven were all staying at kenneth got the feeling that he was being watched so he told steven to pack a bag and that they were leaving they all got into kenneth's white buick and drove out off back to the cabins um, Kenneth dro dropped the two off at the cabin, so Irvin and Stephen, and then drove off to see his mother. His mother figured that he was just there to borrow money, and she gave it to him because apparently she, um, he was the only one who ever visited her, I guess, out of all ten of his... No, he didn't have ten siblings. That was Del. Kenneth had um, three other siblings, and Kenneth was the only one that would visit her, so she just gave him money. Um... Then, out of the blue, she surprised him with a black and white puppy. Um, this kind of caught Kenneth off guard, but he took the, baby, the puppy and made the drive back to the cabins with it. Once he got inside the cabin, though, he gave the puppy to Stephen as a gift. Kenneth then proceeded to tell Stephen that his parents no longer wanted him and that a judge granted him custody of the boy because they could no longer afford to take care of him and all of his siblings. He then told Stephen that his new name would be Dennis Gregory Parnell and that Kenneth would be his father. Uh, the next day, Kenneth would cut and color Stephen, now known as Dennis, um, Stephen's hair. That same day, Kenneth would quit his job telling his boss that his mother had a heart attack. So he, um, basically changed this boy's life, made him believe that he was somebody else, made him believe that he wasn't wanted. And that's really sad. It's really sad that that's what he did to this poor boy. Um, so on December 17th of 1972, Kenneth would rape Stephen for the first time. On the same day, Kenneth would then sell his car and get a different one, then moved him and Stephen to Northern California, leaving Irvin behind. Uh, Kenneth realized that they would need money, so he would leave to go to different types of jobs, sometimes leaving Kenneth, or I'm sorry, start, um, sometimes leaving Stephen with a babysitter. But he would threatened Stephen not to tell the babysitter anything about what was going on. Not about the sexual assaults, not about him um, finding him and picking him up. None of it was to be said. He would tell Stephen that he would send him away if he told anyone. Um, and on January 2nd of 1972, Kenneth enrolled Stephen into elementary school under the name of Dennis. That same month, Della and Kay were sending letters to all the schools in the area stating that their son was missing and that if anyone comes in looking like him, that they should notify the police. Um, or if any children had seen him, that they would, should let someone know just in case. Well, that letter never reached the school that Stephen attended, and the schools that did receive the letters just threw them in the trash. That's also what got me. Like, they just threw them away because they didn't care. Um, however, an employee at Stevens School noticed that all the required forms that were to enroll a child at school were never received for Stephen. So when Kenneth started moving them again, that was written down on his records. However, none of the future schools that Stephen would attend would even worry about it. So, like, Stephen didn't have a birth certificate or a um, social security card or anything like that. Schools were just like, okay, whatever. We'll just go ahead and let him in anyway. And for the next several years, the two of them would move from place to place frequently all over California. New homes, new schools, all of it. 
One teacher thought Parnell was a little odd, but found Stephen to be very much a delight to have in class. Um, Kenneth would call her every single day to tell her what Stephen would be doing after school, such as either riding the bus, going to a babysitter, or being picked up. She thought this was a little odd, but never questioned it. Um, in 1973, Stephen tried to run away, but he was only eight at this point. Um, he waited until Kenneth was a treat. Uh, a treat. <laughs> he waited until Kenneth was asleep and tried to find his way out into the dark, but he ended up getting lost and was only able to find his way back to Kenneth's house. He wouldn't try again until many years later. <clears throat> so that summer, Stephen would become would become very popular with boys around the neighborhood and Kenneth would teach him to drive at just eight years old. They only got about five minutes down the road because Stephen almost crashed the car, which he's eight. Of course he's going to almost crash the car. Anyway, Stephen would then meet a boy by the name of Kenny. Ken um, Stephen would go to say that they started off as enemies, kind of, and that Kenny would kind of bully Stephen a little bit. Um, but they ended up getting into a fight one day, and Stephen beat him up pretty good. But the boys settled their differences and actually became friends afterwards. Stephen ended up going over to Kenny's house almost every single day after school, and Parnell saw that this was like a good babysitting deal. Like, yeah, go ahead. Go over to his house all the time. It's free. So he started paying um, Kenny's mother to watch Stephen after school every day, so like he didn't have to pay full break. Oh, uh, yeah. He didn't have to pay full price for a babysitter then. I guess it wasn't actually free, but he had to pay full price. Um, so the boys started hanging out, and in the late fall of 1973, the boys would pick up their first pack of cigarettes and start smoking. Um, they were only in third grade by this point, um, and Kenneth caught Stephen and Kenny smoking, and he ended up grabbing Stephen by the arm and slapped him with an open hand and ordered Kenny to go home. Um, that same fall, Stephen would get sick a lot, like a lot. He missed 27 out of 39 days of school, and for the first time since the kidnapping, Kenneth would have to take him to the doctor. He caught stuff like the mumps and impedigo, but Kenneth did not leave Stephen's side, didn't even let him answer the doctor's questions himself, worried that they were going to get caught. So they ended up moving again. Now, Stephen was worried that he would never get to see his new friend again, but by surprise, Kenneth allowed Kenny to come over and stay the night. Turns out, Parnell was sleeping with Barb, Kenny's mother, and was also eyeing up Kenny as a potential next victim. So, Kenny's family got real close with Stephen and Kenneth. They would spend a lot of holidays together. You know, take weekend trips, get drunk. Kenny's father, though, was a real bad drunk. One instance happened where Kenneth intervened on a beating of Barb. Bob, Kenny's father, told Kenneth to stay out of it and continued to beat her in front of him. Bob would let Parnell use his tools to work on his truck and they had become close friends. But one day he walked in on Parnell with his arm around Barb and kicked him out of the house, basically saying that their friendship was over. <sighs> By this point, money is getting tight for Kenneth and he decided to call up Irvin because Irvin had stopped putting money in an account that they had set up and Kenneth needed that money. Irvin told him that he wasn't going to send him money anymore and they didn't speak after that for about six years. So Kenneth was definitely just using Irvin and I think Irvin started catching on to it, but he, I don't think he still knew what was going on. Um, now... Kenneth started seeing Barb in secret, and one night they both went out leaving Stephen. I think Steve, yeah, they left Stephen in a motel room waiting for them to come back. And when they did, they were drunk and started having sex with Stephen in the room. Stephen says that at this point he was called over, and Parnell and Barb would force him to perform sexual acts on the both of them. After this, Barb left Bob, and all three of them moved into a tiny trailer together. Stephen would be forced to sleep in the same bed as them, and one several different occasion, he would be forced to perform sexual acts with them at only nine years old. Now, Stephen says later on that he never liked Barb. He just thought with her around, Kenneth wouldn't sexually assault him. Dogs again. You know, they're never quiet when you need them to be quiet. So, anyway, um, 
The abuse still continued, and it wasn't until Bob, Barb's ex-husband, showed up one night drunk and demanding that Barb come back, Kenneth had the cops called, and the next day, him and Stephen drove out of California. They came back after a few days. Parnell just wanted them to lay low. Barb was still there, but demanded that Stephen get his own bed in the room because she was tired of sharing it. So the abuse and the assaults continued on for many, many years, and once Stephen started entering puberty... Kenneth started looking for younger boys to try and kidnap. Parnell would try and use Stephen and try to have him lure the boys in, but Stephen would purposely sabotage the kidnappings. At one point, Kenneth even raped Barb's son Lloyd and Kenny. The boys did tell Barb and she phoned the sheriff, but the sheriff didn't believe it, so she packed their bags and left to never talk to Kenneth or Stephen again. But see, like, she did it to Stephen. Like, yeah, I'm, like, it's it's all fucked up and it's all wrong but like why didn't she call the sheriff on steven then like or on kenneth for steven like that's what i don't understand oh ghost oh my goodness hiccups Whew. okay i'm okay again <sighs> oh my goodness <clears throat> anyway so steven started growing up started growing up into a teenager and started smoking pot, drinking, smoking cigarettes. Kenneth let him do it and even started selling pot to make more money. Kenneth told one of Stephen's friends, Sean Poorman, that he would give him pot if he brought him a young child. Sean Poorman didn't do it, but was taking Kenneth's pot. So Kenneth would make him go and follow a child for a long time, and they would plan to kidnap him. Kenneth forced Sean to do it with him, and on February 14, 1980, they picked up a little boy by the name of Timmy White. Sean and Kenneth literally plucked Timmy from the street, got him in their car, and drove off. Timmy was given a sleeping pill so he wouldn't cause a fuss. Sean left after they reached Parnell's house and hitchhiked back home. Parnell would then change Timmy's clothes while he was still asleep and put in... Oh, okay. Timmy's clothes while he was still asleep and put in the back of the car so he could go and pick up Steven from school. I couldn't read that for a second and I lost my place. See, I have everything written down in front of me as I'm going. Um, so I am sorry if it does sound like I'm reading a little bit. You know, trying to make it natural. Trying to talk to you guys about it. Um, but if I don't have everything typed out word for word of what I'm trying to say in front of me... Like, I'll change it up, obviously. Like, I'm not re reading it word for word, but basic idea put down and then I'll change it up as I go. Um, but I lost my place completely and I was like, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Um, anyway, so Stephen saw Timmy in the back of the car and didn't say anything to Kenneth about the boy or anything. Um, so Parnell would give Timmy sleeping tablets and lay him in the bed with him, but would not touch the boy. Now, 14-year-old Stephen was worried that Timmy would be sexually assaulted, so he made it a point to come home every day from school at noon. Eventually, though, Kenneth started in on the same routine he had done with, Steve like, with Stephen, like coloring his hair dark brown. And this sent memories flooding back with Stephen. At first, he was actually jealous that Parnell had brought home Timmy, but in the end, he wanted to protect him. Stephen tried to run away twice with Timmy. Once they ended up soaked by the rain, and the other time Kenneth ended up staying home. What Stephen didn't know was that Kenneth was planning on killing him and moving on with Timmy. The only thing that delayed that plan? The weather. The ground was too hard to bury a body. Two weeks later, on March 1st, 1980, 14-year-old Stephen and 5-year-old Timmy would make their escape. Stephen carried him down the road and hitchhiked all the way to U um, Yukia? U-K-I-H? Yukia. Yukia. No, no, I have to Google that. How do you say that? Google. How do you say... Yukia. Yukiha. Sounds like you. Oh, wait. 
Yuki. I. I. I, I definitely typed that in wrong. Yukaya. Okay, so I was right. Yukaya. And hitchhiked all the way to you. That's not what I said, is it? I don't know. Yukaya. <laughs> the original plan was for Steven to let Timmy go into the police station by himself, but the police saw him as well and took them both in. And that's when Steven Stainer told his story. Told the police everything. And on March 2nd, 1980, Parnell was arrested. And in 1981, he was tried and convicted of kidnapping. He was sentenced seven years but only served five. Irvin Murphy was sentenced to five years, to five years, but was paroled after two. And Sean Poorman was sentenced to a juvenile work camp. And Barb was never charged. Later on in life, Stephen had trouble adjusting to life back at home. Stainer said that his parents still saw him as that seven-year-old boy. Stephen went through brief counseling and brief counseling he went through grief counseling but not oh no it is brief counseling like he went through a small amount of counseling because his dad was like he didn't need any but steven would be bullied at school and would drop out and would start heavily drinking causing him to be kicked out by his parents and it would put a strain on their relationship in 1985 steven would marry 17 year old jenny edmondson who he had two children, two children with, and Stephen would work with a child abduction group and talk to children about personal safety. On September 16th, 1989, Stephen would be in a terrible accident when his motorcycle would collide with another car. 500 people attended his funeral, for, including 14-year-old Timmy White. In January of 2003, Kenneth was arrested again after trying to coerce his caregiver into buying him a four-year-old boy. Parnell, by this time, was 71 years old. He was receiving 24-hour care after suffering from a lot of illnesses that caused him to not be able to move as well. His caretaker, Diane Stevens, was well aware of the man's past and worked with police to perform a sting operation against Parnell. Parnell told Diane that he wanted to make a child have a clean rectum and would give her $500 for him. When arrested, he told police that he just wanted a family. On February 9, 2005, Parnell was sentenced to 25 to life. Parnell was incarcerated until his death in 2008. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Stephen's side of the Stainer Brother cases. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that story with me, that um, kidnapping case of Steven Stanner. Um, in the next episode, we are going to talk about Carrie's case and how he turned out to be a murderer. And some people say it started because of Steven's case, because of Steven's kidnapping. Um, honestly, my thoughts on um, Steven's side is <sighs> Steven could have been found a few times throughout the seven years that he was kidnapped by Parnell. He was only 200 feet away from his grandfather. You know, someone could have knocked on the neighbor's doors. I mean, I, I guess it wouldn't have done much, but Kenneth could have, you know, just hit him somewhere. I, I know, I get it, but they were so close. It's frustrating, because they were so close. But what I don't understand, shame on the schools for throwing out Barb and Dell's letters. A child is missing, and they just throw them out. And not only that, but not a single one of them asked for any records. Not a single one of them asked for a birth certificate, shot records, any records at all. No, they just took the word of a kidnapper. And were like, oh, okay, yeah, sounds legit. He can come to school here. And next, I don't, if they, if the police could have investigated Barb's son being raped and molested by Kenneth, they would have found Barb telling the truth and they would have possibly found Stephen. And every single thing could have been better to, been better to find Stephen because they were so close so many times and he probably could have been found a lot sooner. 
Um, but I really think Steven should have gotten therapy in after everything. Um, he spent years and years in a terrible situation and he should have gotten help. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's all I have for you guys today. Don't forget to check out next week's episode. Um, if you enjoyed stuff like this and you had a nice time with me, hit me up. Uh, go ahead, send your emails to hightimeandtruecrime at gmail.com. You know, leave a comment, send a message, do whatever. Um, find this on Spotify. Find this on anchor.fm for now. And thank you guys for listening in and supporting my podcast. All right. I hope everyone has a good welcome and a good welcome. Happy weekend. And you know what? Happy Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. And for those of you who have had to get married during 2020, bless you. Bless you. And I hope you all got your happiness or will be able to reschedule your happy days. Goodbye, and I'll see you next week.